Pulp MX Network Production. Welcome to the Pulp Hockey Show with Steve Mathis. Support the show by clicking the Amazon banner on PulpHockey.com before shopping. Follow the show on Twitter at Pulp Hockey. Subscribe on iTunes and find us on Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to the Pulp Hockey Podcast. Thanks for listening. My name's Steve Mathis, and uh, great great to, to have you guys downloading the shows and go to iTunes and Stitcher and everything else. The response has been fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate it. Tell a friend. Review it on iTunes and all that. Ferraro 20 is the code at 2UNDER, the number 2UNDR, the best men's underwear out there. A lot of NHL players are wearing it, and you can save it. 2UNDER.com using the code Ferraro 20 and, of course, Righty Boards, uh, use the code PULP to save 15% at RightyBoards.com. It's a patented foam technology. makes installation and removing a breeze. This thing is, uh, is the first portable, restickable hockey whiteboard that sticks to virtually any surface. So if you're a coach out there, if you're fumbling with the old-school hockey whiteboards that won't erase, try these. Slap it up in the locker room, on the glass, take it down, and uh, put it on your office wall. All right, with me on the line, uh, former NHL All-Star, Selk Trophy winner, King Clancy winner, captain of the Philadelphia Flyers, a vice president of hockey operation with the Leafs for many years. Now he's with TSN. Uh, Dave Poulin. Dave, thank you for doing the show. My pleasure, Steve. Um, so you're, I don't know if you want to take this as a compliment or not, but you're, uh, you've moved into TSN and uh, doing a lot of Leafs lunch and, and appearing on panels and things like that. Um, you're really good at it. Maybe you should keep going. I don't, I don't know if you, if, you know, I don't know if you want something you want to pursue down the road or if you're just doing this in between front office gigs, but uh, I think you're, you're, you're doing well. So I appreciate that very much. You know, it, it's new to me, and when everything happened with the changeover with the Leafs, I thought I'd just sit back for a little while and see what, you know, what occurred around. And I had talked to a couple different teams, and nothing was an immediate fit. Mm-hmm. And so I started on with TSN and just sort of tiptoed into it. And I have so much respect for these guys because it's hard. And it's, you know, the guys that are good at it really put a lot of work into it. And I think everyone thinks you just pop up and sit up on TV and put a little makeup <laughs> on and talk about hockey a little right. bit. But the amount of work that goes into it, just like anything, the people that are good in this field do a lot of work and they grind away at it and they're good at it and they, but they work really hard at it. So the more I did it, the more I've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And it keeps you top of mind in terms of hockey. It's interesting too, Steve, you end up learning and knowing more about the entire league than you do with your, when you're with one team. Sure. Because when you're with a team, you're so micro-focused, and, and my task with the Toronto Maple Leafs was I was also the general manager of the Toronto Marlies, mm-hmm. and I was very involved in the American League, and I was on the executive committee and the governors, and so you're so sort of n- not narrow-minded, but you're channeled into what you're doing on an everyday basis. It's hard to keep track of the entire league, and you know that's what your scouts are for, and that's what your people are for, mm-hmm. but this is refreshing in the number of people you talk to and number, the other thing is how candid they are with you about their own situation. <laughs> right. And, they, you know, they're, it's kind of funny to sit and talk to guys and they're like, oh, you know, my team's doing this or this or this. And you're like, well, I would have loved to know that when I was running another hockey team. <laughs> right. Which, of course, they won't share with yeah. you. But it, it really has been good. And with a great group here at TSM, it's really a quality group of guys and a learned group. And it's really been fun. Have you found yourself in any having any of your buddies in the front office call you up and uh, I don't want to say like yell at you or anything, but I do find uh, the, the 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 part that I listen from you and I don't watch a lot of uh, TSN games on the um, Center Ice package because all the Canadian broadcasts aren't in high def for some reason down here in the U.S. So I like hockey in high def. So I don't watch a ton of the panels, but you're you're pretty honest. You offer an opinion one way or another. And I like that as a, as a fan, but do you find you, some of your buddies calling you up and saying, Dave, what are you talking about? Well, it's really funny you say that, Steve. I was in Ottawa on Tuesday and, uh, one of the players who I had here in Toronto, um, Mike Koska. Okay. And yep. I had him with the Marlies and he got up with the Leafs and great kid. And I really brought him in and, and, essentially got him his first shot in the NHL. Mm-hmm. 
And so he's up with Ottawa. And so I'm walking by and he goes, Pooley. I turn around and he goes, you absolutely killed me on air last week. You killed me, he said. And, and I started laughing. I go, Mike, I didn't kill you at all. He goes, yes, you did on this goal. And you, you said this and this. And I said, no, 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 Mike. I didn't kill you. I just described exactly what happened. <laughs> and he started laughing and he said, but it wasn't my fault. I went in and I sat down with the coaches. And, you know, when that happened, I, I sat out the rest of the period. I didn't play another shift. I go, oh, oh, so wait a second, Mike. Yeah. Someone else thought it was so, your fault, yeah, Exactly, too. right. It wasn't just me. <laughs> right. So it was, it was a pretty funny conversation, actually. And he was laughing about it. He said, oh, I'm grinding away. I'm trying to stay on top of things here. And, mm-hmm. and you just crushed me. And I said, no, 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 Mike. I just, yeah. I just told people what happened. And that's what you're trying to do, Steve. You're, you're trying to do it maybe a little bit differently. Maybe, you know, I have a, a pretty eclectic hockey background. You do. I've played, yeah. I've coached, uh, I've scouted, and I've managed. And so, you know, I've seen all the different things. And it's, especially in management, I mm-hmm. think it helped me so much to coach. Because once again, I talk about respect, and, and I respect how hard that job is. Mm-hmm. It's such a personal, personal thing to coach. And, you know, when I came into the NHL, um, I was very blessed with the coaches I worked with, but I built up a nice relationship with them and, I, you know, I had regular breakfast with them and tried to be both an ear and a voice. For right. And, uh, and so I, all the coaches I work with, I do have very good relationships with, but I think that's a big part of it is supporting it and learning to manage that position really helped by doing that job. So is it something you want to keep going, or are you looking for a job back in the game in the front office uh, uh, along the way, or, or are you really enjoying this media? I imagine the pay in the front office is probably better, but are you really enjoying this uh, this media gig where you might just start you know, going after it a little bit? You know, I'm really enjoying the media side. I've started to do radio now, which mm-hmm. is much more of a talking platform. Yep. You know, the panels, and so really four different silos. Um, I do a lot of the Ottawa games on the panel and some of the Leafs games. So you'll do a pregame between both intermissions, a mm-hmm. little post game, And then we have a 7 o'clock show, that's hockey with Gino Retta, and I'm on that quite regularly. And then the late-night show, that's hockey tonight, which is a post-game show and runs all the highlights. And, and that's really good. If you do that a couple nights a week, you're pretty in tune with what's going on around mm-hmm. the league. And, and just in terms right. of current players you know I, I was doing a game fairly early in my tenure and it was a winnipeg game and i commented the defense uh the left defenseman had been burned mm-hmm. on the play and but a lot of times if there's 11 games in a night in a half an hour show you won't see all the highlights ahead of time sure a lot of times you're seeing them for the first time during the show so i just in the first time through i referenced the defenseman well he had been traded there at two o'clock in the afternoon. I had no idea who it was, what number he was wearing, <laughs> right, and, you know. Right. Nor would I know that right. it was Jay Harrison, and you know, so things like that. You you really do have to keep up with it. Somebody may be called up at three o'clock, and you better know who number seven is on such and such a team if he makes a significant play that night. And I guess for you. Um... You're, you know, you're doing Leafs Lunch now with Andy Petrillo. I listen to, uh, almost every day. I try to overdrive as well. Um, for you, you were in management with the Leafs for a long time, and yourself, Claude Loisel, Dave Nonis, Burke, when he was there, you guys would do a lot of radio hits, and you would be pretty open and honest with things, and it was a really lot of communication with the media. So you're not there anymore. Lou is there. One person speaks, Lou comes on the radio every now and then. You and now as a media guy, you're probably wishing you had Dave Poulin to talk to. It's very, very different. You know, that's <laughs> the style that's worked for him over the years. Yep. He's been very successful with it, and it has changed things dramatically. There's no question about it, and that's his prerogative. He's running the show. But, you know, Brian Burke was my boss, and mm-hmm. he felt it was very important to communicate, particularly with a market like Toronto. Right. And, you know, and obviously you didn't divulge everything, but you certainly, in terms of keeping a pulse and letting the public know, you know, a little bit under the curtain, a mm-hmm. little bit behind the scenes, but what was going on and what were the thought processes, he thought that was part of the job. Yeah, and you guys did a good job at it, I think. You, where you, Yeah, you did let some people know a few uh, thoughts behind certain decisions, you know? so Yeah, and I think that's healthy. I really do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's very different 
the, the way that, I mean, if you look at the whole league and look at the way Lou Lamorello does it, he's <laughs> essentially different from yeah. from the other 29 teams. But once again, yeah. he's had a great deal of success. Sure. Uh, albeit in a different market, in a very different market, and, and New Jersey's not New York, and New York's not Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so this is this has probably been an interesting look at the media world from his standpoint. And, you know, even Mike Babcock coming in here or, um, you know, in a position where Detroit is different from Toronto once again. Yeah. Toronto is, there's a lot of volume here. And just in terms of pure newspapers alone, yeah. You know, I mean, in this day and age of newspapers, you know, it's it's unheard of to have four newspapers in a city. And, you know, you have the Star, the National, the Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Sun. Right. Well, I, I don't know, Steve, that there's a major city in the U.S. today with four major newspapers. Yeah, probably a good point, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, yeah. and maybe in the world. I don't right, know if right. London, England does or not. Yeah. But really, so the volume of writers that would be at a normal everyday afternoon skate or whatever it may be is just different here. Mm-hmm. Um, TV stations and obviously not just national, but local media. It's uh, It's got to be a bit weird uh, for you. You're now talking about the Leafs. You're, you're, you're looking at them a lot. There's a big part of your job is analyzing the Leafs. A lot of players that are there were uh, drafted by you and you guys, and, and you've had personal relations with a lot of the players, Kadri and these guys. Um, and let's face it, you got let go from the Leafs, and, and I've been let go from jobs as well, and, we, and probably everybody listening to this has been. Um, and I imagine you weren't pumped, and just like all of us. So you're sitting there, and you're, you're you know, you're obviously you've been in the game long enough as a player at, at Notre Dame, everything else. You know the, the these are the, the way the things go. But you've got to sit there and be like, okay, well these the the, the guys that let me go, I got to talk about them now. It's got to be a little weird. Well, it is. It is, and you know, I'm a year and a half removed from it now. Mm-hmm. Time, you know, is a healer, and and you do realize while you do realize it's a part of the business, it's also a line. Sure. Yeah that you grow not to like when <laughs> right. people say, yeah. you know, oh, you got fired, but it was part of the business. Just right. like when I got traded and that yeah. became the tagline. Oh, don't, you know, it's part of the business. Yeah. Well, but you're still a human and you still have, you know, yeah. uh, a sense of pride. And, and it, it was challenging to watch, but it, it is essentially so different. And there's been so much changeover, particularly in the management, the scouting staff mm-hmm. is entirely new. And I think that's somewhat helpful that, that it's all changed over. But in terms of the players, um, a number of them are still the same, and a number of them were in the pipeline, but not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. So, do I have a lot of pride in seeing Connor Brown score a goal? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, he's a six-round draft pick. Do I take a tremendous amount of pride in watching Morgan Riley play? Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. and, and all the draft picks that are now coming to fruition be it a Josh Levo or, um, you know, Rena Jiliev or whoever it may be, absolutely I take pride in it. And some of the trades we made for guys like Jake Gardner, you know, who are now coming into their own. Well, Mm -hmm. some of that is just time. Jake has now played 300 games in the National Hockey League. Is he a better player now than when I was managing him three years ago? Yes, he is. Sure. (laughs) You know, not necessarily because of what I'm doing or what anyone else is doing, but because – They've grown older. And, you know, Nazem Kadri, we had as an 18-year-old. Well, guess what? A 25-year-old Nazem Kadri is a little different than an 18-year-old Nazem Mm -hmm. Kadri, both on and off the ice. And so all those different factors probably make it a little bit easier. Right. And, you know, and you look at it objectively, and, you know, we had our opportunity. Now, when we were here, there was different ownership. Mm -hmm. There was different senior management. My general manager was different. And my peers were different. And it was a very different mandate on what we were doing than what's happening right now. So that makes it somewhat easier, too. That is a good point. When you were there with Brian and with Dave, it was, we're winning now, we're going for it, and that couldn't be further from the truth right now. So you're right. And part of that was dictated by the then ownership group and then Mm -hmm. the senior management group. You know, Richard Petty was here at the time. He was a very different commander-in-chief than is in place right now. So when all of those things change... Um, and, and when we went to the playoffs with Boston, I believe we were the second youngest team in the NHL. It wasn't like we did mm-hmm. it with an old group of players. And even, you know, some of the higher profile trades we made, when we traded for Phil Kessel, he was 21 years old. Right. We traded for Dion Phaneuf, he was 24 years old. It wasn't like we were bringing in 32-year-olds and trying to win today. Mm-hmm. We were also trying to build for the future. 
And the problem being that, you know, those draft picks that we made along the way weren't ready to play for us during our five-year term. They're now coming into play. Mm -hmm. You know, now you're seeing them start to grow and develop and mature and, and be factors. Yeah, there is a bit of revisionist history in some cases about some of these guys that were drafted with Brian or Dave when you were there. And, uh, you know, I think people are just, oh, this is awesome. And I'm a Leaf fan also, so I'm, I'm pumped with this with the status of the team right now. I've watched more Leaf games in the last month than I maybe have all year. Um, but some of these are, are guys that you picked, and Connor Brown, for example. Uh, Levo, uh, who just got sent down, I believe. Um, you know, right. th- these, are, these are guys that were under your guys' watch. So there is a bit of revisionist history where people say that era, quote-unquote, was garbage, and it, it got nothing. Well, it got a lot, you know? Yeah, it does. And it, it, the hardest, or, or I guess the biggest thing to know is how hard it is. Mm-hmm to be successful in this league. And, and, you know, the guys in it, I have so much respect for guys that, that have built it, you know, and I'll use the Chicago Blackhawks because I follow them closely. I lived in Chicago prior to coming to Toronto and even being in South Bend, Indiana, you were not far. Yeah. Chicago. And, you know, in many nights I was scouting for Anaheim at the time. And in many nights I was in the United center with 6,000 people. Right. And the joke in the in the scouting group upstairs, a guy would say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go down and grab section 212 for the third period," and he would be the only right. single person in section 212, uh, and he'd be waving at the other scouts up in the stadium. Sure, right. And you know, and then and then once you know, you you would say, "Well, the ownership didn't change." Well, it did. You know, when Mr. Wirtz died and Rocky took over and. And a lot of people don't know that whole story, but Rocky wasn't even in the hockey business. Oh, he wasn't? Okay. He, yeah. Didn't no, know yeah. Peter Wirtz, the, the, uh, his brother Peter was the president of the Blackhawks. And mm. in the secession plan, once Bill Wirtz passed away, Rocky was brought in. Uh, he was actually in charge of the liquor company mm-hmm. and the other parts of the family business. And he was brought in at that point as president of the Blackhawks or CEO of the Blackhawks, yeah. I guess it would be. And then he made three or four significant moves right away. He brought John McDonough in from the Chicago Cubs. Yep. He put the games on television. He brought back Pat Foley. And and just those simple changes changed mm-hmm. the entire structure and fabric. And then they drafted a couple of pretty good players named Jonathan Caves yeah. and Patrick King. But they also missed and, on Cam, Cam Barker, and they missed on um, uh, Mark Bell, right? Like there was yes, they just did. Just like other teams, they, they didn't – just all of a sudden, you know, get super smart. They missed as well. No, in fact, if you look at their drafting record, um, it's not great. And it hasn't been great in recent years, but they've had key acquisitions. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll come up with a fifth rounder like Marcus Kruger or a free agent like Artemi Panarin and it makes them forget some of the ones they've missed on. Yeah. But their key to their organization has been, I think, the management right at the top in Rocky Wirtz and John McDonough. And, you know, I, I have so much respect for Joel Quenville and what he's done. And, you know, I made an argument for him recently as coach of the year, and everybody mm-hmm. wants to take the 22nd place coach who went to 19th place and make them coach of the year. And I think what he's done managing that group of individuals, you know, the core of now there's only three forwards left with Patrick Sharp gone, but for all three cups, um, the only three guys there are, are Taves, Kane, and Hosa. Yeah, and and there's and there's three defensemen there, which people don't realize. It's Keith Seabrook and Jalmerson. Yeah, Jalmerson, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Jalmerson. I never really and thought so of that. Yeah, if, you know, if you're asked to name the six Hawks who've been there along the way, you know, people have a hard time getting to Jalmerson. Yeah, and that, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. But I look at how hard it is to build that, and everyone thinks that that happened instantly. Well, there was a lot of pain in Chicago along the way, and and now. You know, the modus operandi is different in Toronto. It was to totally strip it down, which wasn't our mandate. Mm-hmm. And they've done a great job of stripping it all down. Now the challenging part will be to build it back up. Yeah, the stripping is pretty easy. <laughs> the building up is the part where it gets Well, I just hard. liken it to the simplest thing most people would understand, and that's the construction business. And everybody who's ever built a house or, <laughs> yeah, exactly. or rebuilt a house, the easiest thing to do is take the old right. one down, and now you've got to decide what you want. And sometimes you have to live in three or four houses before you know exactly mm-hmm. what you want in your house. And, uh, and that's no different from a hockey team. You have yep. to go through some different experiences to know how to build it. As a vice president of hockey ops for Toronto, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, 
uh, how shocking was it when the the lockout ended and Burke got let go? As a fan, it was a ten scale. I, I'm like, what? Huh? Pretty. That was probably probably the well, beginning for you to be like, uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> it was a lot bigger shock when I, you know, when Dave Nonis walked into my office and told me that. Yeah, jeez. You know, we when that all happened and. And Brian Burke and I have a long, long relationship. He was actually my agent. Oh, he was. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. For yeah. five years. Right. A lot of people didn't realize he was an agent. So we went back a long way. And, and, and then, so even within our five years, it changed very much from the two and a half years that Berkey was in place to the two and a half years that Nonus was in place. And so that was really two different Yeah two different thought processes as well, which people didn't realize. But uh, it was a shock. Mm-hmm. It was a real shock. And... You know, there are a bunch of different factors involved in above our yeah. above our sight lines. Yeah, but again, things change, and and, and as a Leaf fan, uh, it goes back to you know John Ferguson Jr. And you're like, you're never giving these guys enough time. You're ne- good, bad, wrong, right, whatever. You're never giving anybody in management or coaching enough time. Finally, I think we do now as a fan. I think Brandon has given Lou and and Babcock's got that contract, so things are getting enough time but as a fan you're just like oh not again not again <laughs> well it's funny Stephen. i use that many times and i talked about the three worlds i lived in and mm-hmm. i actually i developed something which you know was my way of of speaking to a group of people and explaining what i did and i called it a virtual powerpoint because it didn't really exist i just <laughs> right. just created mm-hmm. it in your mind and the worlds i lived in you know um Today, tomorrow, and the future. And, you know, today was the Toronto Maple Leafs. Tomorrow was the Toronto Marlies. And the future was the draft picks mm-hmm. and, you know, and the reserve list. And and something I, every single time I made that presentation, I just said the biggest challenge with this is time. And no one has ever been given the time to see it through. Yep. And, you know, we were victims of the same thing. So, mm-hmm. With anything, you know, I referenced the Blackhawks, but any good organization in sport, in any sport, in any field, any business for that matter, time is of essence. And and if you don't have it, yeah, you know, yeah, what are you going to do? You're likely not going to be successful. Um, back to your career as a player a little bit. Um, I wouldn't blame you if you were still very angry at the Edmonton Oilers. Um, you, you've went to, you went to three cup finals, uh, two with the Flyers, 85, 87, uh, and one with the Bruins. You lost 4-3 uh, to three in 87, 4-1 to one in 85, and, and uh, in 90. Um, which team out of those three, the 87, the 85, and the 90 Bruins, which one did you feel like you – I mean, obviously, look, in 87 you lost by one game, but – was there a best team out of those three? Because if you look at yeah. points-wise, the 87 team was the worst team points-wise of the three that you took to the finals. Yeah, that's a, that's a very funny that you asked that. So on our That's Hockey show, they were setting up a schedule for early April, and April 6th is the last game in the Rexall Center. Okay. So the producer sends me an email, and he says, Hey, Dave, I want to tie some things together here at the Rexall Center. Um, am I correct that you lost two Stanley Cups <laughs> in the Rexall Center? So I sent him a note back and said, no, you're not correct. I actually lost three. <laughs> so if you're looking for a personal tie to the Rexall Center, yeah, have one. Right. Um, yeah. I think the team that had the best opportunity to win was the 90 Bruins. Yeah, because Edmonton, was, Edmonton was a bit of an underdog. They kind of got hot. Yeah. They did with Bill Ranford uh-huh. and no Wayne Gretzky. Yep, and and so it was a very different team, um, you know, than those '85 and '87 teams were such powerhouses. Mm-hmm. Now our '85 team was a little bit of an aberration, and it was a really young team. Uh, we rode Pelly Lindbergh, you know, and and he made us believe that we were a better team than we were. Oh, okay. And I've never yep. forgotten the importance of a goaltender with a young team. Everybody says, well, what's used to having a great goalie with a young team? Well, he actually, he would steal games and would win one nothing or 2-1, and then we started to think we were actually pretty good. <laughs> hey, It was the weirdest concept. Yeah. And, of course, our coach was a brash young Mike Keenan. Right. Um, in his first year in the NHL. And... 
So he certainly didn't lack for confidence or wasn't going to let on that he did. Mm-hmm. And we just we were probably too naive to even understand or appreciate what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then we lost Pelly Lindbergh in November of 1985 in a tragic car accident. And it was a real sort of a, a wake-up to all of our invincibilities. Mm-hmm. We all thought, you know, we were on top of the world and we could do no wrong, and we go to the Stanley Cup Finals every year, and, yeah. and you know, there weren't going to be any challenges left in life, and we were couldn't have been more wrong. And so then we sort of were reconstructed in 87 with Ron Hextall in that, a young Ron Hextall, once again was spectacular and won the Conn Smythe in the Finals, even mm-hmm. though he was a member of the losing team. But we believed in 87 that we could beat the Edmonton Oilers. Were you up three to two? And I think you were up. Were you up three to two? No, we were oh, down three, oh, three to two. two. Okay, yeah, down three to two. You won game six, and we yeah. might have been down two nothing in that fifth game or three nothing. It all blurs together. Right, to me, right. but we stole game five in Edmonton. We came back. We were down in game six. We came back and won one three to two. And then in that day and age, Steve, you played every second night. Yeah. And for the first time in the entire playoffs, it was pushed to a third night because the circus was at the Rexall Center. Oh, jeez. And so, uh, yeah, Siegfried and Roy. <laughs> and I had a teammate, Lindsey Carson, who always said those Tigers cost us a Stanley Cup. Right, right. Because we were on such a roll. We had all the momentum. And then the seventh game was pushed back an extra night. So we actually played 26 playoff games in 53 nights. Yeah, and it's game seven. Year. And game seven was zero zero for a long time until Anderson. You know, uh, we were up one nothing in that. Oh, game, was that actually. it? Okay, um, we were up one nothing, and we had a five on three to go up two nothing. And then uh, let me think. In order, Messier Nielsen scored, and then uh, Curry got one in the second period, and a great pass from Gretzky, and then Glenn Anderson made it three one. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was that game's on NHL Network quite a bit. I'm sure you catch it in the summer and you love it. But um. well, I'll tell you what, I, I'm playing that game, Steve, and I had three broken ribs. Yeah, and was just an absolute shell of a person at that point. And I'd broken them in game. Let me think now. I think game the last game of series one. So I, you know, yeah. I had played a number of games with these three and broken ribs. Every and other was, night. Yeah, every other night. I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, an absolute mess. But then in 90, when I went back with Boston, that was probably the best chance we had uh-huh. of the three, even though we lost in game seven, I say that. Going into the series, and we had swept Washington four straight. Uh, we were healthy. You know, Cam Neely and Ray Bork were both and Boston had been there two years before in 88. Yep. yep. And so they had the experience of that to go on. And, uh, you know, it just it worked out the way they did. It was almost like it was a possessed Mark Nastier. Yeah. He was going to prove he could win a Stanley Cup without Wayne Gretzky. And there was a kid line that was on fire, Jelena and uh, uh, Graves. Joe Murphy. Yeah, Murphy. Yeah, they were on fire. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's got to be tough for you. Like I said, three Cup finals, and uh, and you know, really with good teams. Like I said, two Presidents Trophy winning teams, and these right. damn, and these you damn know, Oilers. Six times I went to the Final Four. Yeah, twice with Boston, we lost to Pittsburgh. The two years they won the Cup. Yeah, and so, you know, I was very blessed. I mean, you know, if I look at the fact that in my 13 years I made the playoffs every year, I went to six Final Fours and three Stanley Cup yeah. Finals, and I think, I think Steve, the difference. In your mindset, of course, you you would have loved to have won a cup. Mm-hmm. But if you thought that those teams didn't give everything they had or left something on the table, it would be a lot harder. And that wasn't the case with those teams. Yeah. In fact, in Philly, in 87, I believe we played the finals without Brad McCrimmon and Tim Kerr, who were both injured. And so the fact we were even there yeah. in those two years – and putting, losing to a team who had seven or eight Hall of Famers when we had won, and right. Mark Howe. Um, yeah, true. You know, we did yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, we did well to – it puts it in perspective and says, well, you know what, you were pretty fortunate to be there, and we were. Um, 
I, I've uh, almost I'm a student of the game. I've read a ton of books. Uh, Mike Keenan is uh, is in a lot of these books and in a lot of these stories. I talked to Eddie Olchuk uh, on one of these podcasts earlier. Um, help me understand Mike Keenan. Like Noodles was on, <laughs> no, Noodles was on with me, and Noodles is like, yeah, in Calgary he'd say like, hey, watch this, and then he'd go in and rip into Iggy, right? Um, Eddie Olchuk and Glenn Healy, not fans at all. When you listen to Healy talk about them. Um, you know, a little bit researching for your uh, for this podcast with you, uh, you had some battles with him too, especially as the captain. Uh, was he nuts? Was he crazy? Was he? I mean, obviously he was a good coach, but how, what's Mike Keenan like? You know, I'm totally fine with Mike Keenan. I have no bitterness at all towards him, and he was doing what he thought was necessary to win. And it was a little unusual in that I was only in my second year in the in the NHL. When he came in mm-hmm. as a first-year coach, and I was named captain, mm-hmm. and so you, you, you know, it was more of an organizational decision than a coaching decision because he didn't know me from Adam. Right. And we had, without question, our share of battles. <laughs> but I bet. But I didn't take it personally, and I always thought Mike was doing what he thought was necessary to win, and. When he did something, I think it bothered him a little bit that I understood what he was doing. Okay, right. <laughs> you know? And, You're like, I, that, I know why we're getting bag skated. I know why. Don't worry. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And But he also relied on me to convey that message to the players at times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I looked at it as, look, I'm the liaison. It sort of has to keep things together here. And it was really funny because – over the succeeding years, I would have various guys that were captains of the next teams. Right. Chicago, St. Louis, whatever team he was with. And they would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I'm so sick of Dave Poulin's stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, for me, the stories were Yvonne Lambert, who was his captain in Rochester. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he would come up to me and grab me and he'd say, Yvonne Lambert would never let that happen in his locker room. So, and a lot of it was constructed, I'm sure. But guys would say to me, I'm so sick of hearing Dave Poulin would never let that happen in his locker room. And that's what Mike <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know whether I let it happen in my locker room, but Mike's part of Mike's lore was that, you know, I was his greatest captain, and whoever was next was probably his greatest captain only after he was gone from there. Right, right. But the man wanted to win. And. I didn't blame him for that. He was doing it in the way he saw fit. Did I agree with it? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff he did was so ridiculous. I've and heard. It was almost. Yeah. Oh, you know, I tell stories and people look at me like, really? So our first year, and we're young. We have Peter Zezel and Derek Smith, who are 19. Rick Tockett's 20. Murray Craven's 21. Mm-hmm. You know, Ronnie Sutter's 21. We're really young. And you were still allowed to skate on Christmas Eve back then. You only had one day off, and that was Christmas. Yep. So we won the night of the 23rd, and it was probably our, it might have been our 10th win in a row. <laughs> and we're just tearing it up. Sure. And before the game, you know, the guys grabbed me, and they said, you know, hey, a couple of days before, you know, we'd love to go home at Christmas. So I go in, and I say to Mike, hey, Mike, the guys want to go home. We're scheduled to skate on Christmas Eve. Could we move it up to real early in the morning? Mm-hmm. He says, sure. So we move it to 8 a.m. We go out the night of the 23rd. We beat, I think, Minnesota. Crush them. Right. Tenth win in a row, whatever. We all go out after the game. It's the 23rd of December. Right. We pop up the next morning. We're on the rink at 8 o'clock. And Mike's practices were always really high-paced and short. So we have, like, a great 40-minute practice. And then he would bring out 12 pucks, and we'd have an aerobic skate, 12 minutes. And after, you know, one minute one way, he'd shoot the puck in the net. Everybody would hoot and holler, and he'd go the other way. Mm-hmm. So this would go on for 12 pucks. So we get through this. He brings a big boom box out. He puts Christmas carols on. We're flying. It's not even aerobic. <laughs> it's anaerobic. Yeah. At the end of it, he lines us up and skates us for another 45 minutes. 
Now, everybody had been out the night before. Yeah. Everybody had given him everything we had in the 40-minute practice. The 40, yeah. Everything we had in the 12-minute skate. He skated. Guys were seasoned up. Guys were sick. Guys, now guys are going to miss planes. And at the end, he calls everybody together and says, expect the unexpected. Have a Merry Christmas. Jeez. And skates off the ice. And, and stuff like that, you'd look at yeah. it after. We, you know, guys were furious. There wasn't one guy that didn't think about Mike for the entire day and a half over Christmas, which is exactly what he wanted. Yeah. We went out the day after Christmas. We lost 6 nothing to Washington. I mean, guys couldn't even skate. Yeah. yeah. And then we went on a tear. We won, you know, nine of the next ten, and he told us that was why. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that, I tell you a story like that. Yeah. It's so vivid in my mind. You know, I, I'm not quite sure what I had for lunch today, but it's mm-hmm. vivid in my mind, a ridiculous story from 30 years ago right. that absolutely just is locked into your memory. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pulp Hockey Podcast Show. Having a good time doing it, and uh, thanks to our guys for coming on board over at Righty Board. Righty Board's Power Play Whiteboard is hockey's first restickable portable hockey whiteboard that goes wherever you go. Whether it's needed at one end of the rink or one end of the country, the Power Play board sticks to any surface your team needs it. Vivid graphics and a white background on the front. Removable, long-lasting, air-free adhesive on the back. Visualization is now your ultimate weapon. It's the most versatile, practical, and simple-to-use whiteboard in the world. Every rink, every team, every coach needs to get a few of these Power Play whiteboards and check them out. Use the code PULP at writeyboards.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y, boards.com, to get 15% off your Power Play board. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I, I, another guy I had Dave Manson on, and he was not a fan either from Chicago days. And, uh, you know, again, I, there's no way Mike Keenan in 1985 is, can even survive in the NHL in 2016, right? Like that kind of stuff just that would not no, work. It's, it's just so different, Steve. Right. It is so, so different. The communication is different. The, the expectations are, are very different. Mm-hmm. Although I do think Mike Keenan could coach in the NHL. I'm not sure that he could manage. He couldn't manage the players the same way he managed them then. No. He'd figure it out. He's a smart guy. Yeah. He'd figure it out. But he couldn't manage the players today like he managed them then. It's just a different society. Did he do the whole, I'm going to get dressed in gear in practice and you guys can have your. Did he do that with you guys? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He did. He probably went after Rick Talkett, you know? And. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he just got these crazy eyes. It's, All right, boys, I'm, I'm playing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There was one funny story I tell. It was in St. Louis, and Scott Mellenby had joined us. And Scott was a tough, tough young player. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about his career, and you think about And he'll tell you today that Mike Keenan made him the player he was as much as it pained Scotty to say that. <laughs> right. um, you know, and years later, you know, you're playing golf with Mellenby and Berube and and Murray Craven, and, and they'll tell you, look, he got everything out of us that we had, and he made players out of all of us. You can't argue that. But we had a game in St. Louis, and Scotty had fought twice. He was 20 years old. Right. And he'd fought twice. He got beat up twice. And uh, he fought somebody really tough on St. Louis. And so we were supposed to fly out the next day at, like, 1. So we have a 9 o'clock practice in St. Louis. By the time we get there, the entire locker room is cleared out other than our gear. And so I look and I see what's happening and I say to the guys in my corner, he's going to come after us physically. He's telling us we're not tough enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's going to come after us physically. Yeah. And I said, he's going to start with me. So <laughs> Again, goes, we back were, to, goes back to you knowing what he's going he's to do. Coming right, right. right at me. <laughs> so in our corner, picture this group of players. We were uh, in numerical order. That's the way they, mm-hmm. that we were set up in the locker room. Number 17 is Eddie Hospitor, the box car. Right, right, yeah. Number 18 is Lindsey Carson. Uh, tough, tough. Yep, scrappy guy. Number 19 is Scott Melby. I'm number 20. Number 21 is Dave Brown. Dave Brown, that's right. <laughs> number 22 is Rick Talk. Right, right. So I say to them, we're sitting in the corner, and I said, he's coming my way. <laughs> Five guys at exactly the same time say, He's not getting near you. <laughs> I don't hear you. Yeah, yeah. Murderers. Yeah, yeah. Dave Brown talking. Good luck. Yeah. 
Exactly, but that's what Mike wanted was Jeez. to unify his team uh-huh. around whatever the issue was. So he knew if he came at me that they would rally around me. And so I was I the target a lot of times, mm-hmm. absolutely. But you know what? I knew what he was doing. Yeah. It, I didn't take it personally. And guess what? I wanted to win, too. Yeah, for sure, right? And, and, and say what you want about Mike. His team's, for the most part, won wherever he went. Um, hard to argue with that. Yeah, Steve. no, it really is. hard to argue, you know. Um, if Pelly Lindbergh hadn't passed away, obviously he won the Vesna Trophy and, uh, you know, he looked great. Would he have been an all-timer, do you think? I mean, he's a little bit before my time, like I'm, I'm 41, so he was, I was pretty young. But w- what's your take on, on his skills and where he would have been? That is a great, great question. And normally when I tell someone that's a great question, it's because I'm stalling for the answer. <laughs> um, but that's not. Right. That's a really good question. Pelly Lindbergh was 26 years old. Um, you know, almost six years previously, what people forget is he was the goalie in Lake Placid for Sweden. Yeah, I didn't even know that. that okay, yeah. Tied yeah. the U.S. 2-2 in that famous game at the start of those Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so he, that, was, that was when he was 20 years old. And my one question would have been whether he could have, could have put the work in to maintain his skill. He, was, he went on skill alone. He wasn't in, like, a phenomenal condition goalie. Mm-hmm. He hated riding the bike. He hated being <laughs> in the gym. Yeah. So his natural skills and ability made him the best goalie in the world and the Vesna Trophy winner at 26, would he have been able to maintain it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that year, he was the best. There was no question about it. We would win games one nothing, and we'd strut out of the rink like we were really good. Yeah. And Brad Marsh used to say, hey, guys, you realize our goalie <laughs> yeah. is teaching us how to win. Yeah, Marsh was, the guy remember, back, Marsh was the guy back there all the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, right. And I remember the next year, um, you know, we had Bob Froze and Darren Jensen were our two goalies. Mm-hmm. And they actually won the Jennings Trophy the year after Pelly passed away for the lowest goals against in the National Hockey League. Right. And we were playing a game in Boston late year, and we lost like 6-5. And we all went out after the game, and there, we were sitting around a the table. There was about seven or eight of us. And one of the guys' dads was there, Murray Craven. Mm-hmm. Now, Murray Craven was, was one of the most intelligent players I played with on and off the ice. I mean, Murray Craven had come out of Medicine Hat, Major Junior. Had Murray Craven been a college player, he would have been at the top of the class at Harvard or Yale. Oh. In my eyes. Yeah, yeah. It was that, right. that intelligent, you know, not, not from a formal education standpoint, yeah, just, just that intelligent of a guy. He really was. And... His dad was there. He was a very successful businessman in Medicine Hat. And, um, and I'll never forget this. We were all bitching and moaning, you know, I missed this chance. I missed that chance. You know, we lost 6-5 to the Bruins. The Bruins were a really good team. And he listened for about a half an hour. And Mr. Craven said, guys, you're all wrong. And there was kind of sound. And <laughs> right. he looked and he said, you've got normal NHL goaltending now. This is what teams deal with with <laughs> average NHL goaltending. Wow. Your goaltending last year was so above average that you guys all thought you were really good. You were a team with an incredible goaltender. You are now a team with an average NHL goaltender. Interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Interesting yeah. insight, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was. and I can kind of, as a, as a fan of the Leafs, uh, Ed Belfour, for many years, he had Curtis Joseph before that, like Pat Quinn style, was. More like, hey guys, just just go get them. And Balfour and Joseph hit a lot of uh, problems. And then the lockout comes. Eddie comes back. He's a year older. He's not the same guy. And the team stinks. And it was the only reason was Eddie wasn't playing out of his mind. You know. And you're right. I, I totally saw that with the Leafs back then. So that was more like you. Can guys. we have a better example of that than the Montreal Canadiens? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Excellent point. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first however many games are undefeated and all world. And, and even when Carey Price got hurt, the same confidence and swagger carried on for about eight or nine games. Yep. And then Mike Connett. Right. And then reality set in. Slowly. Yeah. <laughs> things start sinking in. Um, at some point in your career, you go from a 30 goal guy, you play a lot with prop. I remember that. Um, and Tim Kerr, I think too. And, um, yes. 
And it was uh, your offensive guy. Uh, my buddies were, I had two buddies who were just insufferable Flyer fans growing up, and they, they loved you guys. And um, also, at some point, you go from offensive guy to, to more of a defensive guy. You win a Selkie trophy. Um, was that more of a mindset? Was that Keenan at some point? I don't know when Keenan was out of there, but was it somebody saying, hey, Dave, we're going to start putting you on Gretzky and Lemieux and these guys? Other way around, I was a defensive guy who had a couple of good offenses. <laughs> <laughs> I never viewed myself as an offensive player. Oh, okay. Ever. Yep. And you put up some points. I went, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I went to Sweden um, right out of college for one year, and Ted Sater was my coach over right. there. When I got over there, he said, you have to lead the league in goal scoring. And I remember looking at him going, I don't, I've <laughs> never led the league in goal scoring in my life. Right. And I never viewed myself as a shooter or a goal scorer. And he said, no, you don't understand. You have to lead the league in goals. And I did. I led the league in goals. I think 35 goals in 32 mm-hmm. games or whatever it was. Yep. And that sort of changed my mindset. But really, in Philadelphia, Steve, that was uh, lack of anyone else to play that role. To do it, yeah. And I was put together with Prop and Kerr, and we just, you know, had magic chemistry. Mm-hmm. And But that was really not the norm the, my, of my mindset. And I was also, because I was responsible defensively, it made sense to put me in that role. And, you know, we were sort of a hybrid, and that we were a pretty good offensive line, but we could play against the mm-hmm. other team's best lines. And, and, you know, and go head-to-head. And so it was that as much as anything, but I would much more consider myself a defensive player of mindset than an offensive player. I think I just had a couple, you know, a couple pretty good years. <laughs> um, yeah, so you won the Selkie Trophy, so obviously, and you were a good face-off guy uh, for most of your career. Um, how do you – how did you stop – try to stop Wayne? You got a lot of uh, – a lot of uh, people writing that how good of a job you used to do against Wayne, Mario, these guys. And obviously, look, you won a Selkie trophy, so you were good at it. Did you have a strategy, quote-unquote, for, for trying to stop these guys? Uh, there were many nights driving to the rink, Steve, when you would say, what am I doing? <laughs> how like, am I going to do this? <laughs> like, what am I doing? Right. And then, you know, when you had, you know, the stars you went up against on an every-night basis, it was like, like, think of your job. You're driving to the rink, you're going, okay, I'm going to shut down Wayne Gretzky tonight. Sure, I'm going to. <laughs> right. um, you know, you just, I, I tried to play, and I think the fact, you alluded to it earlier, the fact that we had some offensive ability was to our benefit. Mm-hmm. Because they had to be a little bit aware of the fact that we could put up points, too. And, and you know, Timmy and, Timmy and Brian Prop were both good defensive players. Timmy Kerr went 50 I think he went 58, 54, 54, 58 yeah, in that sequence something like that, of goals, yeah. which is staggering. And, you know, the fact that we could score but also defend, I think, helped with it. Um, we pretty much just played heads up. You were certainly aware of where he was on the ice at all points. Mm-hmm. And I never, ever, ever, ever sat smugly after a game and said, <laughs> boy, I shut down Wayne Gretzky right. or I shut down Mario Lemieux. In fact, in 89, Pittsburgh was just really starting to emerge. Mm-hmm. And they were heavy favorites in the playoffs against us, and we were tied 2-2 after four games. And game five in Pittsburgh, and I remember going down for breakfast and picking up the paper, and in big block letters it said, Poulin shuts down Lemieux. No, <laughs> like, and I can oh, no. remember just getting a sick feeling going, are you kidding me? Right. And you'd have to go to the record books to game five in 1989. Mario Lemieux had five goals and three assists that night and uh, in a 10-8 victory for Pittsburgh. And I remember thinking, yeah, I guess we didn't shut him down that well. And uh, But we came back and won game six and seven. That's a good part of the story. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. That's a nice part, right? You know, but... he was, it was just... Those guys were so special and so good. And I had the opportunity to room with Gretzky for almost three weeks during the Canada Cup in 87. And it was an interesting look. What I came out of it with was he's a really smart guy, and he was incredibly observant Mm -hmm. of everything around him to the point where he'd be sitting in a room and he'd tell you what was behind him in fashion like, you haven't turned your head around, Gretz. But that's what he saw on the ice. 
He said to me one time, geez, you guys shouldn't have changed the metal strips on your glass in the spectrum. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, they were painted red and they were so intimidating. And you guys put like silver ones in them. I'm like, we did? Like, really? <laughs> you know, he just yeah, yeah. He saw things yeah. in a different light and saw things differently. And so I don't think anybody ever shut them down. Mm-hmm. I always laugh now and, you know, when we're going through history and I say, Look at the greatest scoring era of our time. Is it a coincidence that that's when I won my Selkie? During the greatest scoring <laughs> exactly. era of our time? Yeah. Like somebody's getting 212 yeah. points and, yeah, great, Pooley won a Selkie. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good job, Pooley. You, you, only, you were only minus 30 against Gretzky and Lemieux. We're going to give you the Selkie. Yeah, yeah the, other guys were minus, exactly. the other guys were minus 50. Um, exactly. Yeah, that would have been something else. Uh, and I guess obviously you played against Mario more than you did Wayne, but uh, maybe not when you yeah. count the playoffs. But still, uh, were there they were kind of two different players, really. Mario was just so Very physical, different. right? Like just so yeah, gifted. Yeah, so big. Yeah. And that's what people don't forget. You know, don't re- don't remember rather. And you know, I, I allude to that fact now with Yager, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's just coming in the league in the early nineties. Those are big guys. They're big men, and. But to me, I get asked the question, and Gretzky was still, he found a way to be different. And, you know, he was, he was a unique, unique, more than a superstar um, in the way he made everyone better around him. That must have been weird to be at the Canada Cup with him. You just lost to him four games to three. You hated his guts. Second loss. Yeah, two yeah. of the last three years. Yeah. I just lost to him. Right. Um, yeah, but see, that was Keenan. And so Keenan sure, had right. talk it there. He put he put talk it with Messier. He put me with Gretzky. Like he was like, okay, you know, I'm going to have my guys learn from the best in the world. Yeah, I never thought of that. Right, exactly. Yeah, he's like, all right, this is a perfect opportunity for these guys to see what exactly what it takes. Um, near yeah. the, near the end of uh, your flyer term, uh, your captain forever. They they take the captaincy away from you. Uh, you'd had some injuries, um, which was kind of weird to do, especially back then. And uh, and then they traded you to Boston. You probably were pr- pretty hurt, right? Yeah, very very much so. And. You know, in the discussions, they felt that the leadership had changed. I didn't think it had. I was actually hurt. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that the leadership had changed. But then, you know, the question was, did they want to take the captain away so they didn't trade the captain? Um, you know, is what it mm-hmm. appeared to be after the fact. But, no, I, I did. I, you know, I was very shocked and stunned and surprised and and disappointed and bitter and all of the above. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I went to a really good place. And, you know, I went to the Stanley Cup Finals, and, and uh, you know, afterwards you understand it. But at the time, not a chance mm-hmm. that you understand it. Well, when I think about great captains, your name comes up a lot. Obviously, uh, great success and the Selkie Trophy. You played offense like we talked about. Do you feel like today, in today's game, there's that sometimes, like, there's just I guess as a fan from the outside, I'm asking, like, the captain, is, are they that important? Are they, are they more important than what the fans, us, realize at times? I think it depends. I think it depends on the team and the captain. I'd say Jonathan Taves is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I don't know Ange Kopitar or the, or the L.A. scene enough to know, right. but I would say he is, too. And that would be my guess. And, you know, I took a great deal of pride in being the captain. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty clear that our captain wasn't our best player. It was a person they thought could be the captain. And I think that's a missed cause sometimes. Sure. Where, like, Timmy Kerr didn't want to be the captain. He wanted to score 50 goals and go home. <laughs> right. He didn't right. want to talk to the media after the game. Yeah. He didn't want anything. To, he'd look at me some days and just shake his head and say, I can't believe you put up with all that stuff. Yeah. But I loved it. I mean, I loved being the captain. Yeah. I loved the challenge of it. And I'll tell you what, though. I had incredible, incredible support. And and Brad Marsh had been the captain in Calgary. Mark Howe had been an assistant. Sure. Um, Brad McCrimmon was invaluable to me in that room. And then growing into it, Rick Tockett could look at a room and as a young player and give you an exact pulse of what was happening, but he couldn't verbalize it. So right. he and I were roommates, so he would – he would tell me what he thought, and then I could stand up in front of the group and sort of, you know, tie everything in together and then spit it all out. Right. And so I think that's what I, 
was effective as a captain, was absorbing what Mark Howe was thinking and Brad McCrimmon and Brad Marsh and, you know, and Timmy Kerr and, mm-hmm. and Rick Tockett and then verbalizing to the entire group what the leadership group was thinking through the mouth of the captain. Yeah, I did one of these with Clark Gillies, and he was captain of the Islanders for a couple of years in the glory years, and he's like, I don't want it. He told Arbor, I don't want it. Give it to Trotje. It's like, right. really, like, really, like, I guess it takes some good self-awareness because captains usually don't change. Or, they, or if they do, they leave town. You know, it's all. Well, think about, yeah. think about this, though. If you were the captain in Philly, you were dealing with Mike Keenan. Yeah. That's what guys didn't want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? I do not want to deal with this madman. Please. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you're, uh, and you, you moved to, uh, to Washington uh, for the last couple of years. Before that, though, if you look at your games played, what were you dealing with? 32 games, 31 games, you know, um, 19, 18 games. Was it uh, a serious injury? You know, I, was the, I was the first one that had that that kind of crazy groin, you know, so my my groin tore off the bone and it, oh, yeah. it led to that, that lower hernia, stomach kind of sports hernia, they called yep, it. Yep. And so that was on, I was on the front end of that, and uh, that was the one year in Boston. The other year it was a myriad of things. The broken jaw was a big chunk of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm going to say there's a broken jaw. But, you know, to this day, like at an advanced age, I, I have no aches and pains, no joint issues. Um, so I'm really very blessed compared to some of my sure. teammates and peers. Um, blessed with good genetics and blessed with good fortune. So, yeah, those two years were kind of strange. One was a myriad of things, and the other one was just that one groin surgery, which had me out for about four months. Could you have kept playing after that year in Washington? It was the lockout year. Um, could you have kept playing, or did you decide, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I've had enough? Yeah, I could have kept playing. They put another year on the table, and, mm-hmm. and um, I actually played my best hockey late in the year. But... Uh, you know, Notre Dame called right out of the blue. Okay. And I had the chance to go back and be the head coach immediately. And I had three daughters, and that was the decision was to go back. The identical twins were nine, and the little one was five. And so to leave the game on your terms and go back, and I walked in two days later, I was the head coach at Notre Dame. Yeah. And we raised the girls there, and my daughters have blossomed and thrived magnificently in their respective fields. So, you know, they two of them went to Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, the third one, ironically, went to Indiana, so that's become an interesting <laughs> rivalry. Yeah, really, right? <laughs> uh, you know, she's now getting a graduate degree at Northwestern, um, and the other two both have their master's degrees, one from Tufts and one from University of Kent and Sorbonne in Paris. So they've thrived academically. They've thrived in their respective right. fields. Um, one is an associate curator at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the other one works with an international travel company. So just to see them where they are today and how they're doing and how they're passionate about what they do makes it the right decision to go back and yeah. raise them in that environment. Yeah, I mean, you had 700 games under your belt and, you know, a nice career. And like you said, most people don't get a ch- Most people get the uniform ripped off them. You know what I mean? And it's maybe bitterness or whatever from, from different guys. You, you were just like, ah, I'm good. Yeah, no, I was, you know what, and then the health was a part of it, too. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you look at that, you know, I was starting to get banged up, and, hey, maybe I got out at the right time because today I'm pretty good. I go to South Bend every year for a race in Buchanan, Michigan. We stay in South Bend, flying in and out of South Bend. I stay at that inn at St. Mary's right next to the uh, Notre Dame campus. Got a tour one time. It's a pretty, as a kid from Canada, not into college sports at all um, my whole life, not really, you know, into it too much, but the Notre Dame, you can tell it's a special place. It, it really can. Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? It really is pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And, uh, you know, I go back on a regular basis and uh, to watch it and, and, right. and have two of my daughters go there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's Did, pretty cool. You must have just shook your head at times at the fever of the football program of the Irish. You <laughs> must have just been like, what is going on here? Well, I would tell you, Steve. Joe Montana was a starting quarterback my freshman year. So. Yeah, yeah, geez, I can imagine. I can imagine. It's a pretty good man. place to walk into. Oh, just insane. Uh, we'll wrap us up here. Uh, Paul Pocky Podcast, thanks for doing this, Dave Poulin. Um, what are you most proud of uh, for your, your time with the Leafs front, 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 uh, front office? What do you um, – what, is there a player or, or a move that you, you really pushed for, a uh, player you really pushed for that uh, is thriving now, either with the Leafs or with somebody else, um, you know, 
But yeah, you, I don't know if it's really one player. Mm-hmm. Or not. You know, you. I, I don't really think it's that. You know, mm-hmm. at some point you're going to have been part of the foundation that is the next wave. So you wish them all the luck in the world, and you're a part of the foundation and part of the transition that that led to the next step. And you know, it's a hard business, and uh, yeah, I respect tremendously decisions that are made and how hard it is, and I yeah. uh, just wish wish them all the luck. Great. Well, uh, thank you, Dave, for taking the time for us uh, on the podcast. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. And uh, like I said, you're on TSN radio, TSN uh, uh, TV, doing a great job, I think. And, um, yeah, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time, man, talking about your career and uh, and everything else. My pleasure, Steve. Great. Thanks, Dave. Okay. Keep in touch.